Beyond the, he- Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with Li Tianwei. At a time of great transition, the study of China has become ever more crucial. To catch up with the latest changes of China, more international scholars with an academic focus on China are moving to the mainland and Hong Kong to conduct their research while taking advantage of the latest policies encouraging international talents to establish their own projects in China. Li Cheng and his colleagues are among them. Li served earlier as director and senior fellow at the John Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution. Recently, he established the CCCW, or Center on Contemporary China and the World, at the University of Hong Kong. I talked to him and his colleagues about these latest trends. All of you are now teaching and doing your research about China from the University of Hong Kong. Tell me about why you made that choice. Why is it important for you, given the shifting backdrop of the world and certainly of the uh, studying China uh, academic uh, uh, realities? Let's go to Professor Li first. I think that as a a scholar in the think tank Washington, my Chinese background, ethnic Chinese background, used to be an asset. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but now become a liability and in the current political atmosphere. So that's the part of the reason. Now, I myself did not experience some kind of a harassment or political pressure, just feel that I could not do too much. Hong Kong gave me the opportunity. I think um, uh, Hong Kong can take advantage in this uh, particular historical moment when US, uh, uh, there's a strong uh, kind of a, uh, 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 pressure and also the China studies actually uh, really significantly hurt by decoupling, academic decoupling and uh, many other things. Hong Kong, certainly mm-hmm. you can see from three of us and many, many others end up in Hong Kong that speak clearly right. about the, um, uh, the, the, the great effort by Hong Kong University to recruit global scholars. In common with the other two guests, we both work on bridging China. We want to show, try to explain China to the rest of the world in relatively balanced and nuanced ways. And I, and Hong Kong is a great place to do that, um, where, where we're perceived as, you know, as, as a kind of somewhere in the middle. Dr. Wang, you are of arguably a different generation compared to the other two uh, gentlemen who just spoke. So tell me about your choices. Answer your question, you know, I think of three main reasons, really. The first being the prominence and the rise of Asia as a new locus and engine of growth in the world, as a source of a rich tapestry of ideas, of intellectual traditions ranging from ancient Indian philosophy through to Buddhist theology and contemporary mm. Chinese political philosophy and all the way through to Central Asian, you know, the political practices of maneuvering between great powers. These are all facets of political sciences and philosophical nuances that I find intriguing and captivating and above all, they epitomize really the rise of the global south, the rise of a multipolar world that may not be here with us today and yet would eventually hopefully be the case. And I feel that Hong Kong is probably the best spot and place to conveniently and also accessibly enable me to grapple and wrestle with all of these intellectual traditions and thoughts rolled into one. Secondly, on China, I identify firmly, 
you know, with uh, this this wonderful, fascinating, mesmerizing country. And to me, this country is by no means perfect. It has areas for improvement. It has flaws. It has, you know, struggles and, frankly, barriers, right, as it advances its economy and grows and rises. After three years of pandemic, um, there certainly is a gap of information uh, and academic exchanges uh, between China and the rest of the world. Now, how do you see the changes of angles, the perceptions of studying China uh, in the rest of the world? And while working on the subjects that you are right now, how do you see you're trying to communicate better with your colleagues from different parts of the world? Well, we can access China. This is the advantage of Hong Kong that uh, I attend the academic conferences, uh, did the field work, interview people, met with Chinese leaders. I mean, this is an incredible, I mean, um, you know, amount of information. And uh, my colleagues in the U.S. simply could not compare with this kind of excess. But most importantly, because our um, collaboration with Chinese scholars, we build up a kind of trust. Uh, we open to each other. We discuss different issues from different perspectives. We form, um, you know, some kind of a consortium, a joint effort. This put us you know, in a very, very good advantage to uh, the position to uh, understand China. And I think this is the things that uh, I certainly benefit. I think my colleagues also through that. And also you establish a CCCWB, congratulations. How do you see this platform might be providing more talents? Well, certainly we emphasize governance, both domestic governance in China and the global governance, including some of the major countries such as the United States. I think that the you know I spent the thirty eight years in United States. In case of Brian Wang, also studied UK and uh, as a Rhodes Scholar. And for Daniel Bell, certainly he knows America so well, and also Canada, where he come from. So this kind of knowledge help us uh, with Western some theoretical or methodological approach, but also we become increasingly critical about the limits or out of touch or narrowness of our American approach. I think we are in a good position to really um, establish some kind of middle level series to test in the Chinese context. When I started a study about technocracy 30 years ago, people refused to accept. Uh, when I started middle class 20 years ago, people also, my, my colleagues in the United States refused. I cannot get it published, but now all become trend. Uh, China is dominated by technocrats, uh, China's middle class from not existed 30 years ago to the, now the largest middle class country. Now, what I want to do at the moment is very much follow uh, the, 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 the leadership of Daniel Bill to understand, to better understand the Chinese political system and uh, uh, compare uh, that system with other political system. I think that uh, too often we just uh, consider the Chinese system is stagnant and uh, or out of touch and uh, uh, you know with all these bad words, mm -hmm. but uh, cannot explain what's going on and the dynamics and the paradoxes and the contradiction, but also in light of the uh, recent development in the United States, particularly after January 6th, you know, the, the terrible uh, uh, tragedy. So I think we should also look at the American political system in new light. So I think we are, are in, uh, fortunately in a position to make this such comparison. Your subjects are certainly also uh, 
Dr. Wang is uh, political studies uh, in this collection, connection with uh, uh, philosophies, you study authoritarian regimes, uh, and many of these subjects are not necessarily uh, popular or widespread subjects in Chinese uh, university based on the mainland. So how do you see um, the changing landscape that we are talking about here as Professor Lee earlier mentioned? And what about the niche that you are trying to catch? Absolutely. You know, um, for, for decades, Anglo-American political philosophy had been largely fascinated by, at least in a sort of prim primary orthodox debate, really, uh, by liberal, well-formed democratic regimes and well-ordered societies, so to speak, as John Rawls would put it. And yet what I've always found myself thinking about is what about all the regimes and order governments and countries around the world, whether they be good or bad, legitimate or illegitimate, that do not necessarily conform to that very narrowly defined definition or archetype of you know, political governments. And it could be that these other regimes are indeed terrible because they do not service the end outcomes, not deliver upon the performance, legitimacy, and guarantee the stable livelihood and well-being for the people. And it could also be the case that despite not possessing the features that are often seen as a prerequisite for analysis in Western philosophy, these regimes can in fact do things in their own way in accordance with alternatives to the Western liberal democratic mm. system. This is not to say that we should reject electoral democracy or to see the American and the British systems as therefore necessarily intrinsically flawed. But it is to say that perhaps it's high time for a more expansive conception of what legitimacy is and an attempt to separate legitimacy from mm. democracy and to also identify different categories of legitimacy and explore ways by which non-democratic mechanisms of accountability as well as democratic institutions are both necessary and even in some cases sufficient in unlocking okay. The other question people might ask you, the three of you, uh, and even beyond, is what about credibility? Uh, they are saying you are based in Hong Kong, it is part of China. And uh, even though there's one country, two systems, you have also been seeing the changes in Hong Kong. So tell me more about how do you respond to others when they're saying, oh, you're just staying in China for too long. What about your credibility? What about your academic uh, independence? Questions like that. Uh, how would you respond? What, what, what are you thinking uh, when they're asking questions like these? Uh, Professor Bell. Yeah, well, I've faced so many uh, accusations of being just and brainwashed and so on. I mean, I think the only way to respond is to frankly, to do research that is that is balanced and informative. And, and hopefully the message will get through, even though um, perhaps I'm not having that much success. Professor Lee. Yeah, I wanted to add one thing that um, there's some taboos and the document nine talk about the seven no's and et cetera. So of course, for um, scholars, professor like ourselves, of course, that we value um, academic freedom, our uh, freedom of expression. But it's very interesting, just I had a conversation just a couple of days ago, people talk about in California, they also, there's uh, seven no's, there's uh, the uh, University of Berkeley, there are a lot of things you cannot say and et cetera. So I think we should put it in the perspective. I think that the Daniel, Professor uh, uh, Daniel Bell was absolutely right, that this is experience that I also live in Washington, there's so much superficial understanding of China and uh, fail to understand 
the the paradoxical nature of China's development, uh, because other, with this kind of mindset, you could really could not understand the subtlety, the complicity, and the ever changing nature of the country. I think this is we is uh, as my two colleagues said so well. It's a bridging role. I think we're determined to play that important role, and the the, uh, the establishment of the uh, the. Uh, Center on Contemporary China and the World, known as a CCC, 3C, and W, uh, aim to uh, to try to find a kind of intellectual home for many scholars, whether North and South, East and West, to really have the communication. And also we want to promote the so-called second track dialogue when government to government relation is in jeopardy, when business to business mm -hmm. relation is not in good shape. I think a people-to-people -people relation, the university-based think tank is part of that uh, the new trend. I think we want to play that important role. Uh, ultimately, mm. it's really a matter of peace and war and understanding. It's extremely important at this perplexing time in world affairs. Professor Bell, um, we have seen over the past three years, there is such a lack of academic exchanges, not only between China and the United States, but also in different parts of the world. What is the best way to make it up uh, to a better level uh, at this moment with the uh, with biggest deficiency? I really wonder about that. And what do you see as the biggest obstacles at this moment? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there's still over 300,000 Chinese students in the US, so arguably that's not the problem. The problem is that there's so few Americans in China, in mainland China, I think it was 350 or something. So what China can do is just make it easier uh, through issuing visas in an easier way, and also mm -hmm. having mechanisms that allow people to buy things in a more straightforward way. I mean, if you don't have Wei Xin now in China, it's pretty hard to even to go to a, yeah. a store to buy food, right? Um, but uh, I think Hong Kong's here is it's still uh, it's not just a bridging place, but it's a, it makes it easier. First of all, there's a language, so it's much easier to attract students from English speaking countries. Um, and also, perhaps we have more resources to facilitate exchange. So I think Hong Kong is, a, is particularly valuable for this purpose as well. Brian, you mentioned several times about the global south. Now, there has been such a rise of uh, intellectual curiosity about this terminology and what it means for the future. But there's a lack of really sophisticated yet academic approach uh, to that. How do you see uh, where China is, what provided the groundwork for studying uh, the Global South? First and foremost imperative that we recognize that the Global South is not a homogenous entity. It is not a monolith. It is incredibly diverse. Just take China and India, the two most populous nations in the world, for example, and there are lots of areas and principles over which they disagree. And yet there are also certain commonalities that undergird both countries' foreign policies. The yearning and desire for the recognition that this is no longer a world that should be dominated by a singular pole, e.g. E America or any alternative power. The idea that fundamentally we can construct systems of governance and also civilizational ideals that are 
different from Eurocentric or Anglo-American centric notions of what is just and what is right, even though there are, of course, similarities in the common or the pursuit of a, the common good, pursuit of a good life, so on and so forth. So I think recognizing and harnessing the diversity there is imperative. And secondly, I do believe that China would benefit from acknowledging and more explicitly, you know, instantiating the agency of small and medium states within the global south. And that is to say, whilst in the status quo, Beijing does pay rhetorical heed and acknowledge uh, on paper and also in documents that many small and medium mm. states have the right to own determination and their own fate, it would be even better if in our political interactions, our economic interactions, there's a genuine attempt to incorporate the voices of the people, the voices of the masses, the businessmen, the intellectuals, the the the, the yeah. so to speak, of the societies of countries in the global south, to incorporate them into the fold of developmental aid, of economic interactions, and also of, of course, the multilateral frameworks that China is spearheading today. We have seen over the past few decades ever more increasing curiosity, interests, and also capabilities that the Chinese uh, academic circle has acquired from studying their colleagues, uh, uh, particularly in the West. Of course, now with the shifting of topics of uh, study here in China, we also see some soul searching about what might be some of the best methods for the Chinese academics. Now, you since you know both worlds uh, uh, together with the other two uh, speakers. How do you see the search for the updated uh, methodologies, uh, way of thinking, and uh, the so-called between the East and the West. Well, one of the phenomena in China the past few decades is the revival of cultural traditions, um, including Confucianism. And that's taking a, a academic form where the universities, now previously I was at Shandong University, which as you know, is the heart of Confucian, Shandong province is the heart of Confucian culture. And we had many seminars on, for example, Xunzi, as well as comparisons between, for example, Confucianism and ancient mm -hmm. uh, Indian political thought. Those sorts of questions are not typically asked in the West, but they're they're hugely and, and they're very diverse uh, debates. And I think it's it's encouraging, so long as you know China re remains open to learning from from best practices, uh, best academic practices and methodologies abroad. I think it's a very encouraging trend. I mean, frankly, people think of the mm -hmm. 1980s in China as a very open time, but it wasn't that much. I mean, most academics thought that we should almost, you know, adopt, I'm not gonna say blindly adopt, but Western methodologies and and, and ideals. But now there's much more diversity of views uh, with, within China. Mm. Professor Li, agree? What's your observation? Certainly that the early I only just mentioned the problem uh, in the Western world. But also, of course, on the one hand, the Chinese academic really had a tremendous progress over the past three decades through reform and openness. But at the same time, I think some of the uh, research method probably uh, should be, in my view, should be more uh, uh, quantitative and more uh, kind of methodological uh, sophisticated rather than just uh, following certain line and uh, talk about the uh, things without the backing. I think these things uh, should be improved, but uh, I don't want to be too critical. I think that uh, you do see some world-class scholars emerge. Otherwise, uh, Daniel uh, Bill and I were not edit their work to introduce them to uh, to the outside world. But unfortunately, um, uh, that's still English dominated language. So it's unfair, uh, but that our effort is uh, still 
I mean, it's just limited. But I think that as mm. time passes on, the outside world will uh, gradually understand the uh, pluralistic nature, as uh, uh, Brian Wang always uh, emphasized. Not only the Western world, but China also become increasingly pluralistic in terms of scholarly community. I think that the, mm. uh, the problem is the, the outside world, particularly United States, fail understand this is a uh, 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 the, the country with different layers, different groups, different views, and uh, so to a certain extent that uh, it's so similar to the academic field that we are familiar with. So actually, for me, I took advantage about the the things Western scholars uh, try to ignore, overlook, or, or uh, but China certainly it's still a taboo. So of course, right. I hope that eventually, um, you know, Chinese scholars can also study these kind of issues and. Uh, and uh, then I think the whole quality of research in China will also gradually improve. But uh, we're fortunate in Hong Kong at this moment. I think that the probably will not will not be too long at the moment to take advantage of both uh, situation in China and also situation mm. in the Western world. Uh, Professor Li, I saw you running a center study China. Uh, with the Brookings Institution based in Washington for years before moving on to your current job running CCCW in Hong Kong University. Professor Bell, I saw you running a Chinese uh, uh, academic department with a Chinese university in Shandong before moving to Hong Kong and you also wrote a book about that personal experience. I always wondered what is that like, that cultural uh, clash, cultural differences and the similarities in both of you to fulfill your earlier job and your current roles as well? Being a mid-level kind of public official, it requires extremely hard work ethic. We're always on call. We have four-hour meetings. And I did my best to to participate, but I realized that I just didn't have the same energy that my fellow, uh, I'll call them <laughs> fellow leaders had. So um, I served as dean for, for five years, but I realized that ultimately, I, I mean, Professor Lee is, is a brilliant uh, organizer and, and administrator <laughs> and, and leader, but uh, I'm perhaps most at home in my humble office reading books and writing. <laughs> Professor Lee, Professor Bell is kicking the ball to your court. He has a wonderful <laughs> style of leadership uh, that uh, I really try to try to uh, mimic. No, I I am really fortunate uh, uh, to benefit from the both countries and also uh, the people who uh, taught me so many things. You know, uh, I actually um, started study of politics largely uh, since I arrived uh, California Berkeley. You know, thirty eight years ago. And uh, I work at uh, Brookings with a wonderful team. You know these people, the later Jeff Bader, later David Dollar, and also many other people like Ken Libersaw and Susan Sonten. I mean, these are all wonderful friends, mentors, and, uh, um, and colleagues. Uh, the thing is that um, um, that experience, you know, it's very, very important to me. And also, I think that um, I never miss the point that the American goodwill to China represented by these wonderful scholars and by the ordinary people that I, you know, uh, met on a daily life in the United States. Mm -hmm. The same things, I think, that I benefited from my experience in China and uh, grew up in China, that's sort of Chinese culture, Shanghai culture is always part of me. So I think for those of us have this kind of privilege 
to uh, understand, uh, you know, uh, 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 both culture and the benefits from both culture. I think we have the obligation uh, to mm-hmm. serve as a bridge. So again, mm-hmm. I think uh, still U.S.-China relation the, uh, deterioration has numerous uh, reasons, but one of them I will say is very important one is a misunderstanding and uh, mm-hmm. or it's a kind of uh, fear, ungrounded fear drive countries to be such a suspicious about each other to how to uh, demystify uh, this fear and challenge this kind of, uh, 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 you know, animosities and um, and etc. is our job. And this particular moment, I think that uh, we are in a very important position, not to mention which is right, which is wrong, to point out a finger to each other, but rather we want to through our work to emphasize common ground and the common interests. Uh, this interest could be academic interest, could be uh, economic interest, could be even security interest. Ultimately, I think let this common interest to prevail rather than yeah. kind of demonization, suspicion, misunderstanding, misperception, and the fear dominate our thinking of each other. Chang Li, Daniel Bell, Brian Wong, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's my conversation with Li Cheng and his colleagues from CCCW with the University of Hong Kong. That's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, you can always search World Insight on our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on X and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of the team, thanks for being with us. Bye for now.